Section 8 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 8. The Borgias. Chapter 4. Part 2. The ambassadors next turned their steps to Siena. The poor little republic, terrified by the honor of being considered at all, replied that it was her desire to preserve a strict neutrality, that she was too weak to declare beforehand either for or against such mighty rivals, for she would naturally be obliged to join the stronger party. Furnished with this reply, which had at least the merit of frankness, the French envoys proceeded to Rome, and were conducted into the Pope's presence, where they demanded the investiture of the kingdom of Naples for their king. Alexander the Sixth replied that, as his predecessors had granted this investiture to the House of Aragon, he could not take it away unless it were first established that the House of Anjou had a better claim than the house that was to be dispossessed. Then he represented to Peron dei Bashi that as Naples was a fief of the Holy See, to the Pope alone the choice of her sovereign properly belonged, and that in consequence to attack the reigning sovereign was to attack the Church itself. The result of the embassy, we see, was not very promising for Charles the Eighth, so he resolved to rely on his ally Ludovico Sforza alone, and to relegate all other questions to the fortunes of war. A piece of news that reached him about this time strengthened him in this resolution. This was the death of Ferdinand. The old king had caught a severe cold and cough on his return from the hunting field, and in two days he was at his last gasp. On the 25th of January, 1494, he passed away at the age of seventy after a thirty-six years' reign, leaving the throne to his elder son Alfonso, who was immediately chosen as his successor. Ferdinand never belied his title of the happy ruler. His death occurred at the very moment when the fortune of his family was changing. The new king, Alfonso, was not a novice in arms. He had already fought successfully against Florence and Venice, and had driven the Turks out of Otranto. Besides, he had the name of being as cunning as his father in the tortuous game of politics, so much in vogue at the Italian courts. He did not despair of counting among his allies the very enemy he was at war with when Charles the Eighth first put forward his pretensions, we mean Bajazet the Second. So he dispatched to Bajazet one of his confidential ministers, Camillo Pandoni, to give the Turkish emperor to understand that the expedition to Italy was to the king of France nothing but a blind for approaching the scene of Mohammedan conquests, and that if Charles the Eighth were once at the Adriatic, it would only take him a day or two to get across and attack Macedonia. From there he could easily go by land to Constantinople. Consequently, he suggested that Bejazet, for the maintenance of their common interests, should supply six thousand horse and six thousand infantry. He himself would furnish their pay so long as they were in Italy. It was settled that Pandoni should be joined at Tarentum by Giorgio Bucciarda, Alexander the Sixth envoy, who was commissioned by the Pope to engage the Turks to help him against the Christians. 
but while he was waiting for Bejesit's reply, which might involve a delay of several months, Alfonso requested that a meeting might take place between Piero dei Medici, the Pope, and himself, to take counsel together about important affairs. This meeting was arranged at Vicovaro near Tivoli, and the three interested parties duly met on the appointed day. The intention of Alfonso, who before leaving Naples had settled the disposition of his naval forces, and given his brother Frederick the command of a fleet that consisted of thirty-six galleys, eighteen large and twelve small vessels, with injunctions to wait at Livorno and keep a watch on the fleet Charles the Eighth was getting ready at the port of Genoa, was above all things to check with the aid of his allies the progress of operations on land without counting the contingent he expected his allies to furnish he had at his immediate disposal a hundred squadrons of heavy cavalry twenty men in each and three thousand bowmen and light horse he proposed therefore to advance at once into lombardy to get up a revolution in favour of his nephew galeazzo and to drive ludovico sforza out of milan before he could get help from france so that charles the eighth at the very time of crossing the alps would find an enemy to fight instead of a friend who had promised him a safe passage men and money this was the scheme of a great politician and a bold commander but as everybody had come in pursuit of his own interests regardless of the common this plan was very coldly received by piero dei medici who was afraid lest in the war he should play only the same poor part he had been threatened with in the affair of the embassy by alexander the sixth it was rejected because he reckoned on employing the troops of alfonso on his own account he reminded the king of naples of one of the conditions of the investiture he had promised him viz that he should drive out the cardinal giuliano della rovera from the town of ostia and give up the town to him according to the stipulation already agreed upon besides the advantages that had accrued to virginio orsini alexander's favorite from his embassy to naples had brought upon him the ill-will of prospero and fabrizio colonna who owned nearly all the villages round about rome now the pope could not endure to live in the midst of such powerful enemies and the most important matter was to deliver him from all of them seeing that it was really of moment that he should be at peace who was the head and soul of the league whereof the others were only the body and limbs although alfonso had clearly seen through the motives of piero's coldness and alexander had not even given him the trouble of seeking his he was none the less obliged to bow to the will of his allies leaving the one to defend the apennines against the french and helping the other to shake himself free of his neighbors in the romagna consequently he pressed on the siege of ostia and added to virginio's forces which already amounted to two hundred men of the papal army a body of his own light horse this little army was to be stationed round about rome and was to enforce obedience from the colonnas the rest of his troops alfonso divided into two parties one he left in the hands of his son ferdinand with orders to scour the romagna and worry the petty princes into levying and supporting the contingent they had promised while with the other he himself defended the defiles of abruzzi on the twenty-third of april at three o'clock in the morning alexander the sixth was freed from the first and fiercest of his foes 
Juliana della Rovera, seeing the impossibility of holding out any longer against Alfonso's troops, embarked on a brigantine which was to carry him to Savona. From that day forward, Virginio Orsini began that famous partisan warfare which reduced the country about Rome to the most pathetic desolation the world has ever seen. During all this time, Charles the Eighth was at Lyon, not only uncertain as to the route he ought to take for getting into Italy, but even beginning to reflect a little on the chances and risks of such an expedition. He had found no sympathy anywhere except with Ludovico Sforza, so it appeared not unlikely that he would have to fight not the kingdom of Naples alone, but the whole of Italy to boot. In his preparations for war he had spent almost all the money at his disposal, the Lady of Beaujeu and the Duke of Bourbon both condemned his enterprise. Briconnet, who had advised it, did not venture to support it now. At last Charles, more irresolute than ever, had recalled several regiments that had actually started when Cardinal Giuliano della Rovera, driven out of Italy by the Pope, arrived at Lyon and presented himself before the King. The Cardinal, full of hatred, full of hope, hastened to Charles and found him on the point of abandoning that enterprise on which, as Alexander's enemy, Della Rovera rested his whole expectation of vengeance. He informed Charles of the quarrelling among his enemies. He showed him that each of them was seeking his own ends, Piero dei Medici, the gratification of his pride, the Pope, the aggrandizement of his house. He pointed out that armed fleets were in the ports of Villefranche, Marseilles, and Genoa, and that these armaments would be lost. He reminded him that he had sent Pierre Durf, his grand equerry, on in advance, to have splendid accommodations prepared in the Spinola and Doria palaces. Lastly, he urged that ridicule and disgrace would fall on him from every side if he renounced an enterprise so loudly vaunted beforehand, for whose successful execution, moreover, he had been obliged to sign three treaties of peace that were all vexatious enough, viz. with Henry the Seventh, with Maximilian, and with Ferdinand the Catholic. Giuliano della Rovera had exercised true insight in probing the vanity of the young king, and Charles did not hesitate for a single moment. He ordered his cousin, the Duke of Orléans, who later on became Louis the Twelfth, to take command of the French fleet and bring it to Genoa. He dispatched a courier to Antoine de Bessé, Baron de Tricastel, bidding him to take to Asti the two thousand Swiss foot-soldiers he had levied in the cantons. Lastly, he started himself from Vienne in Dauphine on the 23rd of August, 1494, crossed the Alps by Mont-Genève without encountering a single body of troops to dispute his passage, descended into Piedmont and Montferrato, both just then governed by women regents, the sovereigns of both principalities being children, Charles John M.A. and William John, aged respectively six and eight. The two regents appeared before Charles the Eighth, one at Turin, one at Casal, each at the head of a numerous and brilliant court, and both glittering with jewels and precious stones. Charles, although he quite well knew that for all these friendly demonstrations they were both bound by treaty to his enemy, Alfonso of Naples, treated them all the same with the greatest politeness, 
and when they made protestations of friendship, asked them to let him have a proof of it, suggesting they should lend him the diamonds they were covered with. The two regents could do no less than obey the invitation, which was really a command. They took off necklaces, rings, and earrings. Charles the Seventh gave them a receipt accurately drawn up, and pledged the jewels for twenty thousand ducats. Then, enriched by this money, he resumed his journey, and made his way towards Asti. The Duke of Orléans held the sovereignty of Asti, as we said before, and hither came to meet Charles both Ludovico Sforza and his father-in-law, Hercule d'Este, Duke of Ferrara. They brought with them not only the promised troops and money, but also a court composed of the loveliest women in Italy. The balls, fates, and tourneys began with a magnificence surpassing anything that Italy had ever seen before. But suddenly they were interrupted by the king's illness. This was the first example in Italy of the disease brought by Christopher Columbus from the New World, and was called by the Italians the French, and by Frenchmen the Italian disease. The probability is that some of Columbus's crew who were at Genoa or thereabouts had already brought over this strange and cruel complaint that counterbalanced the gains of the American gold mines. The king's indisposition, however, did not prove so grave as was at first supposed. He was cured by the end of a few weeks, and proceeded on his way towards Pavia, where the young duke John Galeazzo lay dying. He and the King of France were first cousins, sons of two sisters of the House of Savoy, so Charles the Eighth was obliged to see him, and went to visit him in the castle where he lived more like prisoner than lord. He found him half reclining on a couch, pale and emaciated, some said in consequence of luxurious living, others from the effects of a slow but deadly poison but whether or not the poor young man was desirous of pouring out a complaint to Charles, he did not dare say a word, for his uncle, Ludovico Sforza, never left the King of France for an instant. But at the very moment when Charles the Eighth was getting up to go, the door opened, and a young woman appeared and threw herself at the King's feet. She was the wife of the unlucky John Galeazzo, and came to entreat his cousin to do nothing against her father Alfonso, nor against her brother Ferdinand. At sight of her, Sforza scowled with an anxious and threatening aspect, for he knew not what impression might be produced on his ally by this scene. But he was soon reassured, for Charles replied that he had advanced too far to draw back now, and that the glory of his name was at stake, as well as the interests of his kingdom, and that these two motives were far too important to be sacrificed to any sentiment of pity he might feel, however real and deep it might be and was. The poor young woman, who had based her last hope on this appeal, then rose from her knees and threw herself sobbing into her husband's arms. Charles the Eighth and Ludovico Sforza took their leave. John Galeazzo was doomed. Two days after, Charles the Eighth left for Florence, accompanied by his ally. But scarcely had they reached Parma, when a messenger caught them up and announced to Ludovico that his nephew was just dead. Ludovico at once begged Charles to excuse his leaving him to finish the journey alone. 
the interests which called him back to milan were so important he said that he could not under the circumstances stay away a single day longer as a fact he had to make sure of succeeding the man he had assassinated but charles the eighth continued his road not without some uneasiness the sight of the young prince on his deathbed had moved him deeply for at the bottom of his heart he was convinced that ludovico sforza was his murderer and a murderer might very well be a traitor he was going forward into an unfamiliar country with a declared enemy in front of him and a doubtful friend behind he was now at the entrance to the mountains and as his army had no store of provisions and only lived from hand to mouth a forced delay however short would mean famine in front of him was Fivizzano, nothing it is true but a village surrounded by walls but beyond Fivizzano lay sarzano and pietra santa both of them considered impregnable fortresses worse than this they were coming into a part of the country that was especially unhealthy in october had no natural product except oil and even procured its own corn from neighboring provinces it was plain that a whole army might perish there in a few days either from scarcity of food or from the unwholesome air both of which were more disastrous than the impediments offered at every step by the nature of the ground the situation was grave but the pride of piero de medici came once more to the rescue of the fortunes of charles the eighth end of section eight